Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast uh, with Sam and Dan. I am Dan, that Dan. I'm a special effects artist and film person and I'm joined as ever by my co-host. Sam Ashurst and I'm a screenwriter, I'm a director and I also write about film for a bunch of different places and I'm incredibly excited on this special day to be talking about Videodrome, one of my favourite David Cronenberg films. Uh, But before we do that, Dan, why don't you talk a little bit about the structure of this show? Just a little bit. (laughs) Can I go into obscene depth? Please do. Uh, Basically, every fortnight, uh, Sam, and for American listeners, a fortnight is six and a quarter days. Um, Sam and I will look at the Arrow Archive or for an upcoming title. We'll look at the Arrow Catalogue. Catalogue is the word that I meant. We'll choose a title that we want to watch and talk about, either something from back in the archive or an upcoming title. We'll discuss it together and then maybe we'll do another thing. Sam, what's that other thing? Uh, And then what we'll do after we've done that is we'll do something else. And that something else is we will recommend two films based on the film that we've just talked about. We'll also then go on to recommend films based on our lives. The past couple of weeks. (laughs) Films based on our lives? Yeah, yeah. We are on fire today. This is great. (laughs) The film based on my life is Nightbreed. No, um, if you would like to uh, watch similar films to us, then please stay tuned because we're going to recommend some. Film based on my life is Eating Raul. Oh man, that is, that's a beautiful film. And But before this turns into uh, My Dinner with Andre, let's move on to... <laughs> with three in. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to talking about... What do we talk about next? The plot of the film? Talking about the plot. Yeah, Dan. Well, Why before we talk about the plot, like we did last... Fortnite, six and a quarter days ago, um, we we should mention, to those of you who haven't listened to these in strict order, I mean, what are you doing? Spoilers. None of it's going to make any sense. Subscribe right now, please. Please, just listen to all of them four or five times. Make notes. They're better the second time around. You get all the setups we've done, all the little payoffs make more sense. We're really masters of setup and... I mean, normally they are. Gotten my words. They're individually. They're, they're supposed to be that you you only need to listen to one and don't have to listen to the rest. But in this specific instance, and then for a while, it would serve you well to uh, listen to the previous episode, which was the thing which we recorded mere moments ago because Dan's going on bloody holiday to Toronto to work on something which he says is work, but actually sounds like a fun holiday to me. <laughs> well, you can't say what it is because professional colouring in. I might. I might mention what it is okay cool anyway yes um so we've recorded two episodes back to back which why we sound a little bit like we've got cabin fever but why don't you explain the plot of videodrome good luck Uh, (laughs) right so videodrome is a very simple film it's uh, about a television executive who is uh struggling to find his place within the ratings knowing that his niche is the extreme to shock uh, and to appall he's ever looking for more Sex and violence to, to appall his audience with. Early on in the film, he says, do you think we can get away with it? About a title they're considering for broadcast. And he, uh, in, in his uh, pursuits of these titles, he has a friend uh, scanning the airwaves for pirate broadcasts that maybe they can co-opt or license or just mm. steal. And he comes across a title called Videodrome, uh, which is, uh, he, he assumes, fake snuff being broadcast. What he doesn't realise is that uh, there is more to Videodrome than necessarily you see when you watch it, and it starts to have a deep psychological effect on him, uh, and he 
starts to investigate and become obsessed with it to find out what it's doing to him and why. That is a, a really excellent summation. I think that you should put that straight onto IMDb. That's <laughs> genuinely good. I'm, I'm not even being facetious for once. Um, <laughs> oh, were you being facetious? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> okay, um, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, but yeah um, now Dan watched this film in a rather special circumstance I wasn't present for this event but um, you watched it with some of your students didn't you yeah students and staff or ex-students and staff yeah so I teach at a at an art college um, art university in London and uh, I teach special effects I do one module a year there have done for just over a decade and one of the, you know, obviously I talk about film a lot while I'm doing this and I'm constantly and increased, ever increasingly flabbergasted at what people have and haven't seen. So when Sam and I decided that we were going to do the thing for the last episode and Videodrome for this episode, I thought it might be nice to put together a, a, an audience of, of people who should have seen these things but maybe hadn't. Hmm. Um, and so... Professionally. Professionally, yeah. And so with... Um, with uh, with some of my ex students uh, who are you know have worked for me or, or just you know I've remained friends with, uh, we put together a screening on the big screen at the house, uh, and it was after the palate cleanser. This is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> we then dropped them headfirst into Videodrome. Yeah, I'm, oh my goodness, what what a treat to watch it for the first time, especially on yeah like a really lovely Blu-ray uh, on a pretty decent. You know, we've got 120 inch screens. Like good sound, mm. yeah. It's a they they were lucky lucky to see it that way the first time. How did you first see it? What was the first time you saw Videodrome? Um, I I'm pretty sure the first time I saw it was actually on um, either BBC Two or Channel Four. I'm pretty sure it was Channel Four. I definitely watched it on TV. With the Alex um, Cox show. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. It. Yeah. Um, so what was that? What was the movie drone? Movie drone. Yeah. Weirdly, oh my yeah. god. Yeah. And yeah, in case there's anyone out there listening to this who isn't as ancient as me and Dan. Um, or as English. Or as English, yeah. Movie Drome was a, a TV show presented by Alex Cox of uh, Repo Man fame, another astonishing film. Sid and Nancy. Uh, Sid and Nancy as well. And um, it was basically weird and interesting movies that, that Cox generally had an interest in and he'd do cool intros filmed in weird places and then they play the film itself i'm pretty sure i saw an edited version for the first time because it was for tv um and were they cutting stuff i, I didn't i'm, I I'm pretty sure minor cuts but there's there's stuff that um that i didn't know off by heart from watching the arrow version um there's stuff that was kind of a surprise to me and i recorded all the movie drone stuff so i did watch those films over and over again so I'm pretty sure it was cut. I mean, someone out there, by all means, email us if you know the answer to this. But um, it could just be I watched it when I was incredibly young. But yeah, um, it, watching it in that way on television as though, you know, my TV had been invaded by Videodrome itself was a kind of unforgettable way to oh, watch yeah. it. Oh, yeah. When you when they cut, when they do a horror movie that's about TV, mm. I remember one of the I so there was a movie at Fright Fest called The Last Horror Movie. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed, and it is a it worked. I mean, it was still a good film at Fright Fest, but I remember sitting there watching it in the big screen, thinking, "This needs to be watched as a rental VHS." Like the whole 
basis of the film. Mm. Basically, the idea is you've rented a movie called The Last Horror Movie and someone has cut, has just, the previous person to have rented it has put something else on the tape. So you get the first few minutes of the movie and then it breaks apart uh, and you see this other footage that some like serial killer has filmed and then put on this tape. And each person who rents the tape, their murder is filmed and put on the tape. And then the next person to rent it gets killed and added to it. So as you watch the film, you realise that maybe you're next, which doesn't work in a cinema. No, no. Which is a real shame. But So seeing stuff like Videodrome on the, on the small screen, uh, watching the weird camcorder bootleg of Blair Witch yeah. with like nine people on a 14-inch CRT a- TV Absolutely. Screen. For me, the big two are Poughkeepsie tapes, um, oh, which yeah. is best watched on a small screen, but also 100% Ringu. Um, I watched that on, absolutely I watched that on Channel 4 for the first time as well and um, I was alone in the house I was staying I was sort of house sitting my parents which is in the middle of nowhere in the countryside and I was on my own all the lights are off I was watching it on headphones for some reason because <laughs> I'm, I'm an absolute idiot and it utterly terrified me oh, and yeah. it had some additional jump scares in that this was around the time that Channel 4's films were sponsored by Stella Artois. And for some reason, they decided that the Stella Artois stings should be at least twice the volume of the film, <laughs> if not three times the volume. So, um, yeah, that was that gave me a few jumps. But Ringu on the telly is so much more terrifying. Yeah, I, well, so our friend Tony, yes, who I, we may have mentioned before, uh, Tony Clark, who owns Psychotronic Video, used to be a shop in Camden, London, which was one of the first places that I really got my education in this kind of stuff, but now has a, a web store. Psychotronic? Is yeah. psychotronicvideo.com or just psychotronicstore.com? Uh, I think it's psychotronic store. No, anyway, sure. uh, I'll double check in a minute when you're saying a thing. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Tony had managed to get hold of, um, uh, I think, like a, a like a, Ch- a Hong Kong DVD of it before it had come out in this country and he lent it to me and was like you have to see this and it was before it had come out over here so again like on my own in the dark just a, like a late night solo watch and god damn that adds an extra layer of horror to that totally movie totally does totally does now uh, we should probably get back to Videodrome now we've yeah, totally. had quite a serious deviation um, <laughs> and what we normally do on this podcast is we talk about the opening scene and the opening scene of Videodrome involves uh, James Woods waking up um, his TV has operated as a kind of weird alarm clock like his assistant has recorded you know wake up messages for him which is pretty weird and then he goes into his morning routine of drinking coffee eating cold pizza and looking at nude stills from a japanese tv show so much the same way dan starts the day uh, yeah yeah it's pretty normal <laughs> i tend to put the pizza in the toaster yeah i like it warmed up a bit <laughs> but yeah you know it's it's a, a slightly weird opening sequence but it's the tip of the iceberg in terms well, it's of what's meant to, to show him as base isn't it yeah exactly it's, yeah it's a it's a low-class man so totally. when he when you realize that his job is like sieving the media for the for the detritus and filth that he can he can show to people yeah and it's a really sort of clever way of showing that his relationships uh, he has relationships with the screen as much as he does with real people by turning his in- assistant 
into you know a talking head alarm yeah. clock. He's yeah. kind of there is a there's a scene later on where she literally delivers one of the tapes exactly. and he basically ignores her. Ex- exactly, exactly that. And so um, yeah, you know it's Cronenberg, so of course it's going to be super smart. But you know that's a beautiful early scene setter that um, yeah, um, quite interesting. It's nice, and it's obviously talking about like what's happening with media I, you know people have as long as there have been film well as long as there's been media because obviously it happens with computer games now as well there have been people saying oh you know this is the, the this is the the downfall of society all these horrible images are causing you know whatever and he's he's sort of referring to that in the film uh, a bit at least there's a scene where one of his regular providers of content comes to him with this sort of bacchanalian orgy uh, type movie, which he says, "Oh no, it's 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 far too tame. This isn't this isn't hard enough. We need more than this now." Uh, and it felt very much like a sort of uh, a reference to how uh, you know less than a decade before the adaptation of Gore Vidal's Caligula had been the most like obscene and and over the top and grotesque film possible, but by by then it kind of almost felt a bit twee. You know the idea that this uh, these this period hedonism mm. uh, was was once the heights of debauchery, and he's saying no, we need more than this. It needs to be harder. We need to keep going further. We need to push push further into the grotesque. Absolutely, and it's kind of crazy how like how prescient the film is, certainly in terms of the oh, internet yeah. and you know the weird things it's possible to stumble across on the internet and. You know, there's the the character we talked about this the other day, didn't we, Dan? The uh, the Brian Oblivion, yeah, and how he's essentially Twitter before there was Twitter. Yeah, well, he says, of course, Oblivion is not my given name. Yeah, it's my television name. In the future, everyone will have television names, names chosen to make the screen reverberate, and that's Twitter handles, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And um, you know, not to blow my own trumpet or anything, but I, uh, when I was at university, uh, <laughs> my uh, my dissertation—don't worry about it—was about how in the future everybody was going to be incorporated into the computer. Everyone was going to live inside the computer. Everyone was going to have profiles based on their lives and their identities and the things that they liked. Um, uh, and and that was to come. And that was before social media. I based it. Did you did you just think people were going to live in a computer though? Like no, but actually I did put in the dissertation that when everyone is online, when everyone's personalities and interests were online, there's a sort of there's a Cartesian theory about how um, everything exists exists in the mind of God, and I basically said that through computers we would create a sort of a representation of that idea of religion we would have created god's brain in the internet so don't worry about it guys that was before the matrix that was before <laughs> social media i'm just really before clever. homer's allegory of the cave <laughs> i'm just i'm just really <laughs> bloody clever is what i really need to make clear to you but anyway um can uh, i <laughs> can i do a, a, an aside yes so i mean that's this whole episode so far <laughs> there's a uh, there's a, a podcast another podcast up uh no there isn't no, this is the only one, and uh, and if you've listened to all of them, well, that's it. You're done. <laughs> uh, I mean, miss listen to them again if you want. Yeah. There's that. Them louder, a different speed, slower. <laughs> if you want not, to slow not, them down, not, not faster, slower, not, not slower. faster, just slower. Um, no, so Frankie Boyle's got a, 
uh, podcast up at the moment. And yeah. The first episode is like a 90-minute stand-up show that he did, which is good. It's, it's traditional Frankie Ball stuff. The second episode is like five and a half hours, mm. and it's essentially an audiobook of him reading all of his columns from since the Scottish referendum. And it's very good. It's a little hard going because he's quite dry. Mm. Um, it's very, very good. But the last bit of it is a pitch for an episode of Black Mirror that he was asked to do that didn't get made. So he reads the in-depth pitch. Oh, wow. And it's really good. Oh, wow. Like, he says he can see why it didn't get made, and I, too, can see why it didn't get made, but it's really good. What's uh, it about? He, listen to the podcast. I mean, I'll tell you off air. But there's don't you think there's literally the big... another podcast about it. But you're really teasing the audience, and I feel like it's relevant to Videodrome. So. Um, it's about a woman playing with artificial intelligence, and the it, it, it ties more than to Videodrome. It ties into the current popular theory that we're maybe living in a simulation. Nice. But it's about artificial intelligence and our absorption into media. And um, I, I feel like some of the crew working on Videodrome probably do wish they were um, living in a simulation because um, there was actually some quite dangerous moments making this film. Um, <laughs> one of the scenes uh, that was scripted but ultimately um, didn't make it into the film was a moment where Max Wren's TV rises out of the bathtub while showing an image. Um, now, they, they researched how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> what you do is you kill, you, you kill the actor playing Max Rem, and then you reverse the footage. Yeah, you make sure you get all of the other scenes first. So, yeah, they, they were talking about having the actor in the tub um, and to sort of get around the fact that, you know, that would kill him. Decided to fill the tub with a clear fluid that was non-conductive. Um, <laughs> 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 but they, they decided against that. Um, what, were they, what were their choices? Does it, do you know what their top choices of, of non-conductive fluid were? Um, no, no, they don't, they don't mention that, but... Um, <laughs> Oh my god! They then decided to take a real TV and cover its insides molten plastic with with layers of waterproofing insulation, Ooh. which worked. But then they they dunked it in a, in a swimming pool to test it and found that TVs actually float um, because of the the cathode ray tube is a vacuum exactly. Yeah, so they they did axe that one, and then the other sort of slightly dangerous moment while oh. making the film is um, while they were filming the cathode ray mission sequence. Uh, the gather Jock Brandis strolled in and uh, casually said that the power lines to the building were smoking because of the load imposed on them by the TV sets. Uh, by all the TVs they put in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, they could have died in a fire. So um, I'm glad they didn't because uh, what a great film this oh, is. It's genuinely incredible. You know what, like, so I've seen it, I've not seen it as many times as I've seen some of the other films we've talked about um, and re-watching it, especially with an audience who'd never seen it before. I, I sort of found a new appreciation for it. I I think it may have been elevated to my favourite Cronenberg picture. I I genuinely love it. It's it's a it's a really it's a really clever film. Mm. I mean, not all his films are clever. Like he makes clever movies, but mm. it's um the the commentary, the setup, the payoff. It's all fantastic. And recent behaviour of some of the cast aside, it's um. You know what, Debbie, Debbie Harry makes up for makes up for it by being a B charity worker now. Yeah, Debbie Harry, she's saving awesome. the world. Yeah, she's fantastic. Lovely Debbie and Harry great in the film. But but yeah, that that aside, I I, I find it eminently rewatchable. It's, mm. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. I'd say it's not my favourite. At one stage, it probably would have been, 
But no, I think no, I think I've always preferred scanners. Like I, I love scanners so much. I could watch that over and over again. Um, Videodrome is great, but there's just something I don't know. There's something a little bit too dark for me. Oh, so, you know, I think that's what I like about it. I mean, I love, I do love scanners. I yeah. really love scanners. And I think that Scanners is probably more iconic in its at its height. Mm. But I think the ending of Scanners mm. is not as satisfying as the ending of Videodrome. Yeah, I mean, even so. even though Videodrome is very abrupt, and I think possibly needs more than one watch to appreciate the ending. Yes, I think Videodrome is a, is a better structured film. It's a definitely a better structured film. But I still love the end sequence of Scanners. Like that that final confrontation is so fucking. Oh, it's amazing! Cool. It's so fucking cool. And yeah, Videodrome, weirdly, now when we decided to do these episodes back to back, we decided to just pick two films that are of release that we know super in depth that we've seen many, many times. Um, and that was really the only connected factor. Yeah. But what I didn't realise until I did the research was that Videodrome was one of five science fiction horror movies that were heavily promoted by Universal um, before their release in 1982 and given an actual release dates. Those include E.T., Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, The Dark Crystal, The Thing, and Videodrome. But ultimately, um, Universal decided to push Videodrome to to, to 83. Um, So this could have been part of that astonishing 1982. Amazing, yeah. But, it's it's yeah. interesting. I think it's it's good in such a different way from those films. Yeah, totally. It's it is it's art horror at its at its finest, and it's not it, because of that. It's much less accessible. It's much. Um, it's like if you stumbled upon Videodrome, I think, it, especially if it wasn't something you were like, if it wasn't something you were in the mood for or up for um, stylistically, I think it'd be quite a hard watch. I don't think anyone's going to like stumble across it late at night and then stick with it. Normal people. <laughs> <laughs> Normal people might not. Whereas The Thing feels much more like a Hollywood movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's still, it's, it's interesting. And, and that's kind of what I'm getting at, really, with Videodrome feeling much darker because ostensibly, like both The Thing and Videodrome are super violent, they're effects-driven. It's kind of, heavily male perspective though obviously there are women in Videodrome and there aren't women in The Thing but there's just something even though The Thing is kind of bleak and paranoid and all the rest of it there's something much more oppressive and kind of nasty at the heart of Videodrome I'm not saying I don't like it far from it I think Videodrome's incredible it's just I I wouldn't list it as my favourite Cronenberg even though they've all got that element of of, you know oppressive darkness but there's something about this one that's just different for me I don't know what it is it's, it's comparing it I still to the love thing, it I still I love think, it I think the, 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 the difference between it and the thing is that with the thing the aggression is an outward force it's a non-human force yeah whereas even though it's science fiction it's fantastical mm. the horror element the aggressive element in Videodrome is human mm. which makes it innately bleaker that's you can't it. escape the idea that this is people doing this to people yeah and, and, and then on top of that the body horror stuff, mm. as amazing as it is, mm. isn't the stuff that's the most unpleasant. It's the Videodrome footage itself. Yes. The idea yes. that for this... And again, this is super prescient, very low-end spoilers, but... So, you know, skip ahead, blah, blah. But the the idea that for the signal that mm. is hidden in the Videodrome uh, footage to take hold, 
the mind has to be opened up by being exposed to sex and violence mm-hmm. and these base images mm. is um is really interesting because it does tie into the reactionary like sort of dog whistle stuff that's happening in modern politics and the way that um, Twitter is being used and totally, all that kind of stuff. Totally, but, totally. So it does feel much more real and yeah. human and problematic. Yeah. And I think that that's always going to feel darker because it doesn't matter how realistic Bettine's effects are in the thing. It doesn't matter how good the, the performances totally. are. It's, it's still a fucking alien. That's like it's, exactly it's, a, it. it's a monster. It's literally a thing from another world. That's Whereas in Videodrome... It's like, oh, fuck, yeah, no, people do do horrible things to each other every day. And that's happening right now in our world as well. And so, yeah, this is it through a distorted lens. But it still is uncomfortable because of the proximity to what's actually happening in our world. Totally. And uh, Dan and I have a very special connection to Videodrome, don't we, Dan? Do we? Very special. What's our connection to Videodrome? Um, I, I, <laughs> do you want to bribe me off, off mic <laughs> no no because this is actually this is quite entertaining once Dan realises what our special connection to Videodrome is he will kick himself oh fuck's sake yeah of course no, I, <laughs> I immediately realise it so can I, can I say why I'm confused um, no, no fuck no, it doesn't matter yeah, I'll yeah. do the other bit anyway yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll do that during the recommendations basically Dan and I mainly Dan because he he directed it but um, we crafted uh, a short for Fright Fest together we co-wrote it and then Dan directed it um, which is very heavily (laughs) couldn't get more heavily inspired by video well it's called Cinema Drome it's called Cinema Drome and basically um, Fright Fest makes special films to tell people not to turn their phones on during during the films Um, yeah little stings uh and they do different ones every year and one year we were asked to do one and so we came up with the idea came up with the script and then dan directed it and did a masterful job Uh, i love it so much and it's still on youtube if you want to find it that was delightful Uh, (laughs) i had worked with toby kebble on the veteran um not long before we did it and uh, i gave him a, a bell through this and he happened to be back in England from his new fancy pants home in LA for a week around the time we were doing it so he agreed to come in and play the James Woods character and yeah it, it was really fun we we shot I don't really like it's only like a minute and a half two minutes long uh I don't really know how much to explain but uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a couple uh, who don't know each other in a cinema uh watching uh, Videodrome, although we didn't use any footage from Videodrome because we didn't have the rights to no, it. We, we got around it. Yeah, we got around it with heavy static. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's uh, he's on his phone. It's it's a good little gag. Shall we start to wrap this up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. What um, recommendations do you have, Sam? Um, well, we've got to wrap it up first, and then we'll do recommendations. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's got a fucking bow on it. How, well, more, how more wrapped up can it get? So, yeah. So, just to sort of finish it off, Videodrome, one of Cronenberg's very best. Um, not necessarily my favourite. It's Dan's favourite. And if you haven't seen it before, we have... Because I do feel like this is a slightly underseen film. I mean, you did... Yeah. You had a room full of people who had never seen it before. So we have talked around spoilers. Um, there's, there's lots of surprises, lots of weird stuff. We haven't even done a favourite scene, but I feel Let's like... Let's do, do a favourite uh, scene. I feel like... We're dipping. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, for me, uh, I'll talk around it. There's a, a moment where James Woods approaches a television and there's a very cool effect involving the television 
that uh, I very much love. Um, I still... Oh, just adorable. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah. It. Um, just beautiful practical effects. And you must have... I mean, are you sad that you weren't in the industry at this time? Because just just reading off that list of Universal films alone, oh like goodness. Dark Crystal, E.T., like, you know, they're not necessarily your favourite films, but in terms of practical effects and building films around effects. Man, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I think they've, they certainly, like, that area of film was paving the way for the industry I'm in now. Like, you got to remember the special effects didn't have its didn't have an Academy Award until 81. Yeah. 81, then 82, like that was when everyone started paying attention and it really sort of exploded. So just amazing stuff coming out then. Mm. When I was, uh, when I was in Harry Lang's Airstream trailer in his garden talking about like the tenets of design as a, like a, must have been young, like 12, mm. something like that. He had Skeksy cutlery on the walls and like the, the actual shard of Dark Crystal in a frame on his wall. Like, you know, this this stuff was genuinely like so, like they were like beacons for me as I, as I chose my path through life. Um, and then when you get into the darker stuff like Videodrome, mm. when you're a bit older, it's just incredible. Rick Baker's effects in it are absolutely magnificent. I mean, there are a couple of a couple of effects where maybe you're getting closer and you know seeing it in high resolution. And you can pause it and you see the seams a little, but like the the design is incredible. And there are there are still effects in there where you know it, you have to really know your onions to know how they were done, like to be able to work out how they were done. They're, they're, it's really technologically beautiful stuff yeah yeah and yeah still really really holds up and um, i and before we sort of go on to recommendations i do very quickly want to mention a couple of the uh, extra features on the arrow disc because it's a particularly strong disc especially if you you know care about the the icons of of horror cinema at, at this time there's a, an amazing round table discussion it's about half an hour long called Fear on Film on the Disc, um, which is from 1982, which is hosted by Mick Garris and features uh, Cronenberg, John Carpenter and John Landis. And it is such a fun interview, mainly because you've got um, Cronenberg being the kind of intellectual Canadian. Um, You've got John Carpenter basically being his normal deadpan, slightly sarcastic, funny self. Like, he is hilarious. And then you've got John Landis, who is, it's the most Max Landis I've ever seen him, I think. Being very, <laughs> like, you can tell that, you know, he's his, uh, his son's father because he's very sort of kind of, he's taking the piss out of Carpenter a little bit a couple of times and like being very high energy and, and all the rest of it. And interestingly, Carpenter is there to promote the thing. Um, John Landis doesn't, can't say what he's promoting, but... Um, John Carpenter talks about the thing. There's clips from the thing. So, yeah, and Cronenberg sort of interacts with him. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really wonderful um, extra feature. And then very quickly, there's also um, Forging the New Flesh, uh, a lovely documentary. Um, and then uh, David Cronenberg and the Cinema of the Extreme, which is a documentary, another documentary, but with Cronenberg talking heads and contributions from George A. Romero and Alex Cox, who we mentioned earlier. So that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the extras on this disc. Yeah, it's, it's a, a really, really full disc. Really full, high-quality disc. So even if, you know, like me, Videodrome's not your favourite Cronenberg film, there's still plenty there to, to get your teeth into. 
I still love it. It's still it's great. It's in your top, like, three? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, fair, I'm right? definitely not dissing it. It's definitely in my top yeah. three, but... Um, I know you're not, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, should we go on to recommendations based on this film? Yeah. Why I mean, don't you showed s- me that the bow I thought was on that was not on it. <laughs> that, was a, that was a shitty excuse for a bow. There is now a bow on it. Let's There's, move on to recommendations. Yes. yes. Um, Dan, why don't you go first? Son of Cronenberg. Antiviral. Yes. Is my first recommendation. Nice. George's son, Brandon, is directing his own stuff. Uh, Antiviral if you've not seen it, is a fantastic uh, high-concept uh, sci-fi body horror. It's set in a near future where people's obsession with celebrity has reached such heights that people will pay to be infected with diseases that have been harvested from celebrities. So if you want Scarlett Hansen's cold sore or you want, you know, George Clooney's dandruff i don't know whatever yeah like so you can buy these on the on the they're like licensed um products and it plays around with the darker side the darker still side of that what if a a celebrity had a a terminal disease would people would you know how would people respond to that would they still want it it's a it's a fantastic horror film yeah it's really strong my first recommendation is my actual favourite Cronenberg film, which is The Fly from 1986. So good. And now, The Fly, if you haven't seen it, and there's a chance some of you out there haven't, and you lucky, lucky people, um, I watch it at least once a year. Um, recently watched it, uh, our, our friend Giles Edwards, who works in the film industry, um, he uh, is a, a script development executive um, for Dark Sky Films. But... Um, he, at his 40th birthday party he screened it on the big screen and holy shit seeing it on the big screen was so fucking good it was so fun um, yeah I, I I love this film so much it is essentially a kind of Frankenstein tale um, and if you haven't seen it you might think that sort of Jeff Goldblum is kind of the main character but actually we see everything through Gina Davis's perspective she's so um, good and it? she is so incredible and very like Everyone talks about this film, they talk about Goldblum, but Gina Davis is really underrated in the film. It's her best performance. It's probably his best performance as well. Similar level of special effects uh, as Videodrome and, and the last episode, uh, The Thing. It's, it's definitely up there with, with those uh, two movies. And like I say, if you haven't seen it, holy shit, you've got such a treat ahead of you. Watch that, then watch the sequel, The Fly 2, which is also good. Not, is, as, yeah. not as good, it's but, still really good. but like, really, really good. It's one of the better surprise sequels. Totally. And, and like The Thing, The Fly is an amazing remake. Yes, <laughs> of course it is. Yeah, from a 50s film as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah, The Fly. Oh, so good. Damn. Um, also, if you are out there and you love Rick and Morty but haven't watched The Fly... The Fly is the movie they're referencing when they talk about the Cronenberg dimension. So that, yeah, just just watch The Fly. <laughs> Dan, your next recommendation. Uh, so I've got a sort of a twofer on my next recommendation because I had a very like mainstream normal one, but then another one occurred to me while we were recording the rest of the podcast. So I'm going to double up. Um, the mainstream normal one is American Wealth in London. I can't imagine there are very many people listening to this who haven't seen it, but I couldn't imagine there are very many people who hadn't seen The Thing or Videodrome, and it turns out there are loads of those. 
America Wealth in London shares a special effects artist uh, with Videodrome. Rick Baker did both. America Wealth in London in 1981 is actually the film that meant that the Academy invented a category so that they could give it the uh, Academy Award for special effects. And other than uh, working with Dick Smith on Ghost Story, also in 81, Videodrome was Rick Baker's next film after America Wealth. So after winning the Academy Award, for special effects, the first ever Academy Award for special effects. Uh, the next film Rick Baker chose to do was Videodrome. It's uh, and it, of course it's Landis who was on the panel that Sam was talking about. Yeah, you, if you don't know what it is, it's incredible. It's a genre-defining comedy horror um, with the still unparalleled werewolf transformation sequences in it. It's just incredible. Uh, if you have seen it, yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but my my sideline recommendation, and it's not a real recommendation because you probably don't want to watch it. But it's a series of Japanese films called The Red Room. Oh Christ! Um, they're horrific. Don't don't watch them. But if ever anyone had made a film that was like the footage in Videodrome, it's Red Room. So and they're not available in the UK. They might be available in America. They're fucking horrible. So yeah, don't don't watch that. Don't do that. Watch the other one. Don't watch that one. Watch the one that he. America Wolf in London. Yeah, lovely. Watch, watch that. So um, my second recommendation is a film called Tetsuo, which is another one that I saw late night on Channel Four. It's a black and white Japanese movie uh, about a young man who basically transforms himself via metal. Um, it's another sort of body horror plot where. Um, yeah, someone is transformed by technology, let's say that. And I was lucky enough to interview uh, the director, Shinya Sukamoto, a couple of years ago. And um, he actually name-checked David Cronenberg as one of his inspirations. He said, I've always looked up to David Lynch and David Cronenberg. Their work is very visual. They do whatever they want to do, and they get a good reception from audiences. So I admire that. I respect both of their work. So um, you can see that in his film, um, so if you do like Videodrome then I highly recommend Tetsuo it's a short watch I think it's just over an hour it's like, 60, yeah, it's like 67 six, minutes yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know you can fit it in between other stuff um, yeah it's a great film Tetsuo that is it for recommendations based on the movie but we're now going to go on to recommendations based on our lives I'd like to say the last couple of weeks but you know <laughs> We did that. We did that last time. Well, didn't these we, are still, Dan? still recent, recent watches. Yes, yeah, totally. So, uh, Dan, why don't you start? Uh, so, actually, my first one's like pretty available, pretty new. It's Colossal by Nacho Vigalondo. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm doing the thing that a lot of people are doing, where I'm watching at least one horror film every day for every day of October. <laughs> like a lot of people, some people, some people I follow on Twitter, other people I know, yeah, doing. Um, are doing this uh, so colossal is uh, what i watched literally last night uh, and it, it jumped on the list it's really good vigalondo uh, probably best known before this for time crimes uh which is a nice uh, super complex time travel murder mystery i colossal is a uh, i feel like saying a more mature film makes it sound like i'm throwing shade at time crimes which i'm not but it, it's more it's definitely more accessible uh, it's certainly more English language, but it's about uh, a woman struggling with uh, coming to terms with being an alcoholic uh, and the fact that it has cost her a relationship 
uh, going back to her hometown because she doesn't really have anywhere else to go after leaving the relationship in which she was cohabiting with her partner. Uh, and all the meanwhile, uh, in the background, is the news that uh, South Korea is being attacked by a giant monster. And it's about how those two things play into each other. It's it's really good. Yeah, it's, it's a good. really like clever and insightful... Basically, I normally have a problem with a film that has an addict as a lead. It's a it's a lazy writing. Well, it can be in the wrong hands. It's a lazy writing tool because it takes the agency away from the lead. Like mm. it's it's problematic for those reasons. And this never falls into that. It's it's a really decent film, and it deals with that like battling with addiction really well. Mm. Great, um, and it's got monsters in it. Yeah, no, it's it, yeah. Kaiju. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's a really, really fun film. I, I also recommend that. Um, but I've got my own one. As yeah, well. do your own, sir. Um, it's another film that was released in the UK this year. A film called The Transfiguration, which the, probably the simplest way of describing it is: it's Martin meets Moonlight. Um, and that might sound regressive because you know, oh, you know, young black lead, so you're comparing it to Moonlight. But um, actually, the shot very similarly um in terms of like there's uh, one shot that kind of sticks in my mind from both is one of our early introductions to both characters is they're running away from bullies and we see from their perspective as they run and the camera really shapes from side to side they both have that exact shot in it's one of those weird you know similarities that pop up every now and then but more than that, um, it's a horror film. Um, it's about a young boy who believes he's a vampire, uh, much like Martin. Um, but it's kind of more interesting because it's set in a kind of um, inner city ghetto. And it's the, the young boy sort of struggling with uh, quite a, a very, very difficult life. Um, and he meets someone, makes a connection with them, and it sort of explores how someone who's so isolated, both by their situation and the way they see themselves and, you know, potentially their self-esteem as well, and how um, a connection with someone else can either improve that situation or potentially make it worse. Um, yeah, I don't want to say much more than that because I really don't want to spoil it, but it's a really special film. Beautiful performances, and one of my favourite endings of the year. So, um, yeah, The Transfiguration. Did you say it's better than Martin? I didn't say it was better than Martin. I said it was similar to Martin. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say Ma Martin's my favourite Romero yeah. by, by a mile. I, I, I didn't say anything close to the it being better than Martin. No, no, I, I, was, no, no, I wasn't, yeah. I, I wasn't oh, saying okay, did good. you. I was saying oh, would you. Uh, no, would no, you no, say no. But no, the, but, it, but the fact that I would mention it in the same breath. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's um, high praise. Yeah, it's really high praise. So, it's, it's, um, it's on my list for this month. It's on my, my, my Halloween month of horror. And it's out there. It's, it's on Blu-ray. It's like a... Yeah. VOD as well, I think. Yeah. So really, really recommend that film. My second viewing uh, is uh, a film I rewatched recently because I I upgraded from DVD to Blu-ray. It has it's an American disc that I brought in. I don't think it's on Blu-ray in the UK. Uh, the American Blu-ray does have possibly the worst cover art I've ever seen on a disc. Like to the extent that someone saw it and thought it was like a like a joke. Oh God, <laughs> a joke cover. Uh, don't let it fool you. It's a wonderful film. It's Takeshi Miike's uh, Takeshi Kitano's directorial debut, Violent Cop. It's 
genuinely wonderful. Mm. Again, like like a lot of my recommendations, it's pretty fucking bleak. But he basically made it as a rebuttal to to the people who said, "Oh, but you're a television comedy personality. You can't possibly make serious drama." Uh, and so he went away and made one of the darkest films he could imagine. Um, and it's absolutely amazing. Uh, it's it's a sort of Dirty Harry, if Dirty Harry suffered from really serious depression and if thugs got hold of Dirty Harry's sister. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is bleak. Yeah, it's horrible. It's great. It's, it's an absolute masterwork. Jen and I walked down the aisle to the soundtrack from one of Pitano's films. Not this one. Yeah, uh, it, what was Kikajiro. it? Kikajiro. Kikajiro. Yeah, the Joe Hisaishi theme. Nice. Kikajiro. Yeah, no, I, I I love Kitano. I think he's wonderful. But this was, I think Final Cut might have been the first one of his I saw before the Hanabi revi- revival of the early thousands, late 90s. And I don't think I knew who he was when I saw it, mm. but it was, yeah, blew me away. K- wonderful. Kitano is literally the only reason to watch the live action Ghost in the Shell film from earlier this year. And the practical um, effects. He is, uh, he is really really good in that film he's so fucking cool even if he has scalped Christopher Walken from a view to a kill (laughs) (laughs) but um, my next and final recommendation is a film called Molly's Game now that's not out until Boxing Day in the UK Uh, it might be out in the States earlier but I haven't researched that Um, so uh, sorry about that but yeah it's out on the 26th of December in this country Um, I'll probably talk about it again close to the time because I loved it so much. Every single second of this movie is an absolute joy. I went in kind of... I I really like Aaron Sorkin. I don't think he's always great, but, um, you know, I'm a big fan of of the way he writes, and this is his directorial debut. So I was like, "Uh, you know, can he do both? He can do both. It's In fact, I think actually he's learned from um, Mamet, I don't know this for a fact, I haven't read this anywhere, but um, David Mamet um, once said that a director's main job is to go in and tell the actors to talk faster. (laughs) (laughs) And I 100% believe that Sorkin has taken this advice to heart because I've never seen Idris Elba talk so fast in my life. It feels like it's a two-hour, 20-minute movie. It feels like a four-hour, 40-minute movie because it fits so much script in. But everyone in it is at the top of their their, their game, pardon the pun. Uh, Jessica Chastain is astonishing. Idris Elba, as I mentioned, is so fucking good. It's not just that he talks fast. It's a beautifully layered, moving um, and kind of touching performance. It's just so good. And Kevin Costner is great as well. And he is involved. I'm definitely not going to get into spoilers because you're not going to be able to see it for ages. But he is involved in what's probably going to be my scene of the year and the only thing i'll say about it is it it takes place on a bench um so so keep an eye out for the kevin costner bench scene this film is a masterpiece it will 100 percent win the best adapted screenplay oscar um next year i have no doubt in my mind you can quote me on that i'm tempted to put money on it um it will definitely (laughs) win if you put money on it now that's a good time to put money when the odds are great yeah, I might give it a go. But yeah, it really reminded me of kind of like one of those kind of 70s cool crime trial movies. Um, I realise I haven't said what it's about. It's based on a memoir um, by uh, a young lady named Molly Bloom, who uh, was a skier and uh, a, an Olympic hopeful um, who um, 
suffered an injury and then decided to go into setting up um, international high-stakes poker games and then got in trouble with the FBI because of that. This is all in the trailer. This isn't a spoiler. This is the setup of the film. And, but no matter how you feel about that setup, if you think, that sounds a bit boring, I have no interest in poker or skiing, ignore that, go see it when you can because it's the best written thing I have seen this year. If it, Molly's game. If it helps back up what you've just said, I haven't seen it. I'm very much looking forward to it. It was due for a November release in the States. They have pushed it back to a December release specifically to make it qualify for the Oscars. There you go. So, it's yeah. going to win. It's going to win. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's that's it from me. Uh, do you have another? Is that it from uh, me? No, no, I did Violent Cop and Colossal. You did, right. Okay, so... Uh, you know what? Let's let's recommend A Taste of Fear again. I recommended it last week. It's a fucking masterpiece. Uh, Dan, how do you remember that far back? Um, yes, good, I'm right. Powering through everything Jimmy Sangster's written that I haven't seen. So uh, we are now going to go straight into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. <laughs> extra features. Extra features. Right, so on um, this week's extra features, so you may remember that in the last podcast, uh, I recommended a film called Thelma. And uh, I sat down with the director, Joachim Trier, to talk about his uh, magnificent film. But basically, almost as soon as I sat down, uh, we started talking about a load of Arrow video titles. So uh, have a little listen to that now. Who are you writing for? So I'm from Arrow Video and we do a podcast. Great. Um, yeah, yeah. And genre stuff. Genre stuff. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Arrow. I mean, I don't know how many films I've seen from Arrow preparing for this. That's very interesting, actually, because um, we are releasing um, Season of the Witch. Um, are you? Right on the money. Yeah. I, I must have seen someone else's, uh, like the American version, perhaps. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So, um, would you mind, before we go into talking about film, would you mind talking a little bit about your memories of seeing that for the first time? Absolutely. So, Romero's Season of the Witch. What's amazing about it is that it's the perfect sort of feminist allegory that inverts the idea that the witch is evil. And so what, what uh, uh, La Strega Blanco, yeah, that's the Italians would say, the white witch story. And I think it's a beautiful um, feminist tale of a middle-class woman who during the late 60s just feels alienated from her family. The premise could have been almost like a Burton or Antonioni story. You know, like her husband's kind of not in touch with her. Her kids are alienated themselves, so they're not really connecting with her either. And she sees that. And then the empowerment of encountering the occult and, and this kind of witch society, which is, is strangely, strangely really not about... Uh, evil forces or the devil or anything it's it's really about liberation and 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 empowerment but also the sexual awakening of realizing that she is a free individual which i think is a beautiful story and it, it ties very much in with I guess the late 60s ideas of, of women's lib that, you know, I grew up with a mother who's who uh, during the, uh, I was born in 1974 and I remember she was very young when she had me and the 70s and 80s kind of women's lib movement was a big part of my childhood and and, and, I, and when I saw that film now I kind of, I remember telling my mother about it like, hey, you should, you know, like all the, because very often horror films are seen rightfully so as films where women are objectified and just victimized as you know if, 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 I, I also adore some of those films for other reasons mm -hmm. 
because they could deal with subconscious erotic perversions, and I think art should be allowed to have that aspect. But let's be let's have that discussion, and let's also admit that it's very important to make empowering horror films for women. And I think Thelma is an, an attempt to that. So, so season of the witch certainly uh, something I would uh, call sort of a yeah a, a, a classic film. Yeah. yeah, it's a classic. Completely agree. That was wonderful. Thank you so Wait, much. No, no, you're welcome. Um, Thanks for asking. And are there any other? Um, you mentioned there were other Arrow films that you. Watched. Now I'm trying to think. Like, so I have to like. Um, uh, what Arrow films have I got? Because I, I sometimes forget who. So yeah. what, we haven't got Fuji, um, Woman with Lizard Skin. Is that an Arrow? Do you know? I don't think that's an Arrow one. Uh, then. Uh, what happened to the, the Solange series? Yes. Have some of those? Yeah, they're, they're terribly perverse, but also quite fun. <laughs> uh, and I think um, I think maybe, what's it called? Blood and Black Lace? Could that be? Yeah. yeah, which is about the models getting killed off, which is classical Jello. And the distinction, I guess, is I came, as most people, into Jello and Italian horror films uh, backwards through Argento, who's actually not classical Jello, because the old Jello tradition. Uh, and I'm telling you, obviously you know this, but I'm just going to say it for the interview, <laughs> is more tied up with Giallo being yellow, uh, which was the back of these books in Italy that were kind of uh, pulp fiction really, and therefore the color yellow was significant of the Giallo genre in cinema, and a lot of them were really bad whodunit stories, women getting killed and the detective figuring out who. Blood and Black Lace has that level of slight Agatha Christie plot stuff that's not the best quality of it, but what's beautiful is that through cinema, the genre is elevated into a very, very visually poignant style. And Argento creates the supernatural version of it, which I'm more drawn to narratively, but I do recognize that a lot of these films are very elegant and they are made in a time in Italy where fashion is prominent and style is a part of how people perceive themselves in kind of post-war Europe and and it, and, and the, the darker, more sinister, perverse version of that feeds into these movies that are very often dealing with the greatest topics of, of, of art, uh, the erotic and mortality. So somehow they play into that. So there, you know, on one level you could say some of them are just bordering to softcore porn, some of them are just sadistic. Uh, and in this modern political view, correct view that all art should abide to good values, um, well, I see that there is a discussion to be had. But to defend them for a moment, don't we need stories that are about all the bad things that humans feel, all the strange, um, suppressed things, getting them out in the open, talking about them. And remember, they're not pieces of reality. They are fantasies. And fantasy is, of course, important. We need that. We, if you look at the old Norse tales from Northern mythology, they were often about uh, a mixture of humor and, uh, and satire on uh, Thor, the big powerful uh, god with a hammer. It gets stolen, so he has to dress up like a woman to go to the, to, the, uh, to the enemy, to try to seduce them, dressed up as a woman, and then get the hammer and bang them on the head in a grotesque way and kill them all off. And the old Vikings would, would, would laugh at that and would play with, uh, with the ambivalence of, of gender and, and violence. 
violence and heroic gestures and yet the humiliation of being a woman and they could laugh about it and you know that this is a part of our culture this is how we 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 connect with each other as human beings and it also creates a platform for criticism that's fine yes you know what you're tired of watching women being slashed with razor blade after a while of watching too many genre films i felt the same so i went and made telma and you know what at the same time, they made Season of the Witch, which is a feminist witch story. Great, we can discuss these things. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? Let's have it all. So, good. That's it. That's it. Uh, we've done do, two in a row. We're going to do the, the Twittery bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. That's, that? that's, that, that's the bit we don't have to think about. Twitter. <laughs> uh, 13 Finger FX. Uh, that's 1-3. F-I-N-G-E-R-F for Foxtrot X for X-Ray. Um, it will... Uh, it's... I don't know. It's... Occasional political memes I've done. Uh, it's photographs of a bit of effects work, but normally of stuff I did a couple of years ago because there's normally a like a what's the word when you're not allowed to talk about a thing? Embargo. NDA, embargo, non-disclosure. Yeah, yeah one of yeah, them. Yeah, both. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but cu- uh, and some pictures of my puppy. But coming up, there'll be some photographs of Toronto as yeah, I go over there ever, for my work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I used a. F- a screen grab from the sequel to Tetsuo uh, as part of my pitch one of the effects in the film I'm going out to Toronto for. It all comes together. It all synchronises. My Twitter is my name. It's at Sam Ashurst, which is S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T. And uh, it's Halloween tomorrow, isn't it? Um, Because this is taking place in the future. So I'll probably have some... Halloween related nonsense on there um, and also <clears throat> I have something relatively exciting to talk about and as it, this is going out when it's nearly November I think I'll probably start mentioning that on Twitter because it's something that is going to be broadcast in December on television that I directed um, so follow me on Twitter for more information about that if you care at all and if you don't that's also fine I still okay. I still like you um, oh thanks Dan yeah you should care you worked on it oh <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah um, we do the email let's do, do the it, email do it last, last week do it Dan last email, week. email I can't remember it <laughs> is it arrowvideopodcast at gmail.com is that right it's no don't listen to that it's not that it's not a Gmail, is it? It's a, I think it's at Arrow Films. Arrow Films. Oh, yeah, no. But, oh, they're all at Gmail, aren't they? That's just what the we call email now. That's, that's, definitely, that's definitely not the case. Why don't you... Other email service providers why don't are you available. Fi- Brutally you... tread water while we look it up. You're going to fill. Here we go. Oh, sugar. Here we go. Why Why hold back that swear? I know. I'm trying to say fucking <laughs> half the podcast. Look, I just want this to end. Okay, here we go. Please, by all means, email us your favourite swear words to <laughs> Arrow Video Podcast at arrowfilms.co.uk. I was right. Well, we're sorry about the dip in quality, folks. But no, it's going to be great. It is going to be great. I'm lying. I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm being. I think this is the best one. I'm being self-effacing. This is the best one we've done. They're all the best one. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we promise, we deeply promise, we'll be more professional next time. Speak for yourself. Bye bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you.